Amen. Is it not great what God can do with a shoebox? And uh, we, ha- we, we, we got more shoeboxes this year than last year. In fact, I think we doubled the number of shoeboxes. And they've all been given out. And uh, so next Sunday, we're looking at some of them have already returned. But by, by next Sunday, everybody bring your shoebox filled with the goodies uh, and the gospel. Uh, they'll make sure that every child who receives one of these gift boxes will receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really, that's what it's all about. Uh, if you didn't get a shoebox and you'd still like to participate, you can just get any Shoebox size box, fill it with the goodies, make sure you know what can't go in there, and uh, fill it up and bring it next Sunday, and we'll send those out. But every one of us should be in prayer. Prayer for the recipients of these boxes that, uh, as the gospel goes forth, the hearts that uh, of these children and their parents will receive the truth of the gospel and come to know Christ as their Savior. Join me this morning in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to spend uh, the balance of our time today in the last uh, of our message series on stewardship, looking at uh, the early chapters in Genesis. And um, Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians and said, uh, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, the mysteries of God are truths that God has revealed to man, recorded for us in the Scriptures, and we are entrusted with keeping and proclaiming those truths. We are stewards of the truth God has revealed. In the previous three Sundays, we have looked at our stewardship in three areas. Today, we're going to look at one more, the most important of them all, and the reason for the other three. We've looked at time, we've looked at treasures, and we've looked at talents, all which belong to God and which He has given to us to be stewards with. In the first few chapters of the Bible, we discover several things about truth uh, and these very foundational truths that we are called and commanded to be stewards of. We're going to look at three truths in particular this morning, truths about Satan, truths about sin, and truths about salvation. In chapters 1 and 2, we saw how God uh, made Adam uh, in the beginning and gave him authority over the earth to employ and to empower him as king over his kingdom. And it was all good. Genesis 1.31, he said, He beheld all that he had created, and it was very good. But then, chapter 3. And beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, we should have a slide for this. Uh, The Bible says that, uh, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. All of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, we are introduced to this being called the serpent. From where did he come? Who is he? He just shows up out of nowhere, apparently. The serpent is identified later in Scripture as Satan, the devil, the spiritual and supernatural adversary of God and man. John wrote of him in Revelation 12, 9 and said, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. 
He is identified here as the devil, Satan. And he is said to deceive the entire world. And he has angels who were cast out with him that are under his authority. Now, we won't have the time this morning for an in-depth study of Satan, but we must have a basic understanding of the truth of who he is in order to understand the world in which we live. First of all, I'd like us to note that Satan is a real being. Hebrew word is Satan and the Greek word Satanas, and they both refer to an adversary, an opponent, an accuser. He is the inveterate adversary of God and of Christ. He incites a turning away from God and a bent towards sin. He circumvents men by his wiles. And the Bible says that the worshipers of idols are said to be under his control. By his demons, he is able to take possession of people and inflict them with all manner of ill will and disease. On Christ's return from heaven, he will be bound with chains for a thousand years. And when that thousand years are finished, he will walk the earth in even greater power. But shortly thereafter will be given over to eternal punishment. Satan is not just an idea or a representation of evil, but he is a person. Jesus recognized this truth on several occasions. He referred to Satan as the enemy, the wicked one, the prince of this world, a liar and the father of lies and a murderer. Some of the names given to this serpent in the Bible are Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub. That's an interesting one. The devil, the tempter, the wicked one, the accuser of the brethren. The prince of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. The Bible tells us that Satan is active in this world. He is described in Ezekiel chapter 28 under guise as the king of Tyrus, where we are told that he is a spiritual creature, a spiritual being. He is a cherub. Cherubim are angelic beings that are involved in the worship and praise of God. They are first mentioned in Genesis chapter 3 verse 24. When God drove Adam out, he placed on the east side of the garden uh, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. Prior to his rebellion, Satan is called a cherub. In the creation account that we read in the last few weeks in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there is no mention of the creation of angels, seraphim, or cherubs. They were of a different creation. We don't have time to go into that this morning, but everything that was created in this world we find in Genesis 1 and 2, but no mention of these spiritual creatures. But we know they are created beings. The king of Tyrus, as he's called, was said to be in the Garden of Eden. He is said to be very wise and beautiful, a musical creature, anointed and spiritual, prideful and fallen. Forget the tail and the pitchfork. He's not what you think he is. He's nothing like what Hollywood dresses him up to be. He doesn't look a thing like Hellboy. Truth is... He's never been to hell. He's not that obvious. 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that there were false apostles in his day, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And he said, that's no marvel, for Satan himself is also transformed into an angel of light. He, he is not what he appears to be. He's more religious than anything else. In Isaiah chapter 14, we're told that Lucifer's aim is to be worshipped as God. I will exalt my throne, he says, above the stars of God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. When he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew records it for us in his fourth chapter, saying that the devil showed to Jesus all the kingdoms of this world and the glory of them and said to him, All these things will I give to thee if you will fall down and worship me. In the future, this serpent will manifest himself as a very popular man who will bring peace to the Middle East. And wouldn't everyone like that? Paul tells the Thessalonians that there would come a day uh, when apostasy would be apparent in the people of God, a falling away from the truth by God's people, after which the man of sin would be revealed, that son of perdition. John refers to him as the beast. We know him as Antichrist. He opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Paul calls this the mystery of iniquity, which is already at work in this world. It is Satan's effort to steal the kingdom from Adam and to take the worship from God. Now let's look at a truth about, or some truths about sin. Adam and Eve were tempted by this serpent, Satan, and they yielded to that temptation. Eve wasn't tempted to eat of the forbidden tree. That was not the temptation. She was tempted to question God's word and to distrust him. Look in chapter 3 with me again in verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Notice his temptation was it, Hey, Eve, look at that tree. Doesn't it look good? Wouldn't you like a bite? You deserve a bite. No, his temptation was, did God really say that? You see, as a result of his questioning God in her mind, she then looked at the tree, and she liked what she looked at. And she wanted it, and she took it. Despite what God had said, she disobeyed God. And at the root of this temptation is the question, did God really say that? That's why it is so important to know God's Word. That is why it is so important that we have an Awana club that teaches children to hide God's Word in their heart. That is so in, it is so important that we spend time regularly in God's Word, putting God's Word into our minds, in our hearts, and learning what the Bible says. Jesus said, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You see, the 
guard against sin and the guard against temptation to sin is having God's Word and knowing God's Word in your heart. Because why is it a sin? Well, because God said so. If God says it's a sin, it's a sin. And it doesn't matter what my opinion is. Now, the first truth we want to look at here about sin is this, that Adam's sin did not catch God by surprise. Look at chapter 3 and verse 11 in Genesis. It says, he said, uh, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shouldn't eat? God didn't ask these questions of Adam to learn something. He didn't ask to ascertain information as to Adam's whereabouts or Adam's activities. God knows. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Adam's sin did not catch God by surprise. He knew about it. In fact, he planned for it before Adam was created. Peter tells us that Christ was ordained, foreordained before the foundation of the world but was manifest in time for us. Revelation 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ is called the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. So Adam's sin did not catch God by surprise, and Adam's sin brought death to Adam's family. They found out real quickly that the wages of sin is death when Adam and Eve stood over a pool of blood underneath the lifeless body of their son. Abel. If you've ever lost a child, you know the pain that it, that you go through. This was a double pain. Not only did they lose a child, their other son killed him. The reason Cain killed Abel is because Cain was already dead in sins. On the inside. Genesis 5, 5, if you'll turn right over there, it says in verse 5, All the days of Adam were 930 years. And he died. That's his physical death. And it's repeated over and over throughout chapter 5. The last verse, uh, last words of each verse in there saying, And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. Not just physical death. Inner death. Spiritual death. Alienation from God. That is how Adam's race continues to this day, when you were born into this world, into Adam's race, you were born with a natural bent towards sin. You were born just like I was born, dead in trespasses and sins. Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said to those believers there, You has God made alive. He's quickened you who were dead in trespasses and sins. This is why Jesus said, You must be born again. A third truth about Adam's sin is that it brought banishment. Look at chapter 3, verse 23. The Lord sent Adam forth from the garden and drove him out, the Bible says, and placed at the east of the Garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Adam was alienated from the presence of God. Adam's sin affects you and it affects me. It affects us all. It is inherited. It marred God's image. Adam's sin made him a sinner. We're all born that way. 
Romans 3 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's me, that's you, that's your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, your cousins, your uncles, your aunts, and everybody you know. There is none righteous. That's how we're born into this world. Adam's sin is inherited. Romans 5, 12, Paul says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Listen, you don't become a sinner by sinning. You sin because you're a sinner. We were born that way. You know why a dog barks? Because he's a dog. He doesn't meow. He barks. And he doesn't have to bark to become a dog. He barks because he is a dog. You know why you sin? You're a sinner. You don't have to sin to become one. You were born that way. So was I. Adam's sin marred God's image. Look again in chapter 5, verse 3. And Adam lived a hundred and thirty years and begat a son in his own likeness. After his image and called his name Seth. See, Seth wasn't born in the image of God. He was born in the image of Adam. A sinful man. He is a, Adam is no longer the same Adam that God created. He is a sinful version of the original self. And this brings me to a third truth we want to consider, and that's the truth about salvation. How can this sinful creature, how can Adam, the sinner, be saved from his sinful condition? It's all right here in the first few chapters of Genesis. And the truth has never changed. First, I want to notice that Adam didn't seek out God, but God sought Adam. Look at Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And the verse 8 says, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And God came looking for them and said, Adam, where are you? Have you eaten of the tree where have I commanded you not to eat? He asks these two questions, again, not to get answers, not to learn something. God knew exactly where Adam was, and he knew exactly what Adam had done. God sought Adam. Adam did not seek after God. In fact, Adam hid himself and tried to cover for his sin and the results of his sin. And Adam is still doing that today. God knew right where Adam was the whole time. My daughter Elizabeth has an app on her phone whereby she can locate me. She knows where dad is 24-7, or better put, she knows where dad's phone is. And usually dad's with his phone. So she knows where I'm at. She knows if I'm on I-35 headed north or south. She knows if I'm at home. She knows if I'm at the church, if I'm at the library, or if I'm sitting down somewhere at a restaurant. She knows where I am. Don't you think that if man can create an app that will tell you where people are at, that God, the one who gave us our talents and our abilities, knows exactly where we're at all the time. God knows where you are. God knows what you're doing. 
And he's seeking you. He has come for you. Not in wrath, but in mercy. You see, before we ever take one step towards God, he has come after us. Jesus said, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, indication of his death on the cross, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. The cross is God's way of showing up and showing us, I know where you are. I know what you've done. And I'm here to take care of the problem that you created. The problem that you can't do anything about. Adam could do nothing to fix the problem. Not only did God come for Adam, but he provided a sacrifice. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. He provided a sacrifice for Adam's sin. It says, Unto Adam and his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. The only way you can make coats of skin is to kill animals. The first blood shed upon this earth was the blood of animals who had done nothing wrong. They were innocent. But they were sacrificed to pay for Adam's sin. It's like that old song we we still sing. Not say we used to sing. But, uh, Alan picks out great songs and we sing this one often. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Victory in Jesus. No other sacrifice would do. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. His body was still living. Adam was dead on the inside. He was breathing, but he was dead spiritually. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. The sacrifice of these animals was to pay for and to cover the sin of man. And it's the first depiction in the Bible of Calvary. Where years later, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would suffer and die to take away the sins of the world. The just... For the unjust, the innocent, taking the place of the guilty. God came seeking Adam even after Adam's sin. Listen, God doesn't love us because we're good. We're not good. He loves us even still. Romans 5, Paul wrote these words, When we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Just like that sacrifice in Eden that God made for Adam. God's purpose in salvation is to reconcile Adam to Himself, to redeem Adam from from his sins, and to restore Adam and Adam's race To his kingdom. To reconcile, redeem, and to restore the kingdom. That plan has been God's plan from the beginning. And it has never changed. God wasn't saving just the original Adam, the OG Adam. But, are you ready for it? The Adam's family. Go ahead, click. You want to, snap your fingers. That's who you and I are. We are Adam's 
family. And when God came looking for Adam that day, He was looking for you. And He made a sacrifice for you to cover your sins. You weren't looking for Him. You were hiding, trying to cover the results of your sin. But God came and went to a cross to redeem us and to give us what we need to be reconciled, redeemed, and restored. The king and his kingdom. That is the theme of the Bible from beginning to end. Began with Adam in the garden where God created him male and female and gave him dominion. But Adam failed. And so God sought another man by the name of Noah. Put him on a boat and saved him and condemned the world. And when he got off that boat, he said, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. Just like Adam. But Noah made a mess of things also. And so God said, I'm going to fix it where they can't mess up. I'm going to choose a man and I'm going to make an unconditional covenant with, with that man. And he did. That man was Abraham. In 2000 B.C. or thereabouts, he called him from Ur, the Chaldees, to go out and become a great nation. He made a covenant with Abraham in which would, cul- which would culminate in the kingdom being restored. He continued that promise to his sons Isaac and Jacob saying to them, kings shall come out of you. And when Isaac, or, or excuse me, when Jacob lay dying on his bed, his sons gathered around him. He gave them his blessings and he said to Judah, the scepter, the royal rod of the king will not depart from Judah until Shiloh, the peaceful one, become. Of that line of Judah, years later, a man by the name of David was born. And David was chosen, a man after God's own heart, to be king over all Israel. The Bible says about him, My mercy shall not depart away from him, God said, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. He repeated this to Solomon and then Rehoboam to Zedekiah, 20 kings, sat upon the throne of David, ruling over the nation of, uh, or the people of Judah, God's chosen. And then in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, came and destroyed Jerusalem and took Judah captive to Babylon. Jeremiah at this time wrote, The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us! That we have sinned. And Hosea said, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king. And that they did. And during that time, Daniel, one of the captives in Babylon, had a vision and wrote about four Gentile kingdoms that would come upon the face of the earth. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And indeed they did. And during the reign of Cyrus, the, the Persian king... Cyrus, in the first year that the word of the Lord spoke by the mouth of Jeremiah, said, excuse me, and stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth have has the Lord God of heaven given me, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there... uh, among you of all his people, the Lord be with him and let him go up. And thus ends the book of Second Chronicles, which, by the way, is the last book 
in the Hebrew Old Testament. Israel returned to Judah, rebuilt the temple, and the prophet Malachi, about 400 years before Christ, said, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. I will send you Elijah the prophet, the Lord said, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers. And for the next 400 years, there was silence, no vision, no word from God. We call these the silent years. And then one day in the temple, Zechariah went in to do his duty and an angel appeared to him. And said, you're going to have a son. Your prayer has been heard. And your son is going to go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Just like Malachi said. And turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Six months later, that angel appeared to a virgin named Mary. And said, fear not, Mary, for I, thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son. And thou shalt call his name Jesus, the Lord shall, God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Thirty years later, when Jesus was born, or excuse me, when Jesus was born, nine months later, actually, wise men came from the east, saying, "Where is he that is born king?" Of the Jews. Thirty years later, a voice in the wilderness cried out, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist was baptizing. Jesus came to him at the river Jordan and submitted to baptizing. And Jesus began his public ministry. And the Bible says from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king was here. Jesus went about all Galilee, Matthew says, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 3, Jesus preached what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the first of his recorded sermons. And he begins that sermon with these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, in that Sermon on the Mount, he taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy what? Kingdom come. In Matthew 6.33, he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In Matthew 13, we have a litany of parables that we call the parables of the kingdom, where Jesus begins those parables by saying, The kingdom of heaven is like this. In Matthew chapter 20, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother came to Jesus, worshiping him and desiring something from him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said, grant that my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. In Matthew 24, in what we call the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all nations for a witness. The night before he was crucified, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upper room. And as they were eating the Passover, Jesus took bread and blessed it. 
and break it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood in the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We're going to participate in that supper at the end of this service today. Jesus left that upper room with the disciples, went to a garden to pray, and was arrested in that garden. And the next morning taken before the governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pontius asked him this question. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you say it. He released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and they began to gather around him, the whole band of soldiers. They put on him a scarlet robe. They plaited a crown of thorns and beat it down onto his head. They put a reed to represent a scepter in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They mockingly crowned him. They put a scepter in his hand and clothed him with royal garments. And then they spit upon him and took the reed and beat him in the head with it. After that, they mocked him and they took the royal robe off of him, put his own clothes on him, and led him to Calvary to be crucified. And the Bible says, sitting down, they watched him there. And set up over his head was this accusation that was written. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. They walked by his, his cross, shaking their heads and saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we'll believe him. While he was hanging on that cross, one of the thieves on one of his side turned and said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. About the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the earth until three in the afternoon. The sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in two. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Three days later, he rose from the dead. Victorious, triumphant over death, triumphant over hell, triumphant over sin, triumphant over Satan. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And then the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 1, he spent the next 40 days with his disciples showing himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to, you guessed it, the kingdom of God. You can't miss it. The theme of the Bible from beginning to end is a king and his kingdom. And when they were gathered with Jesus there, as he ascended back to heaven, they asked him in Acts 1-6, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? 
That's the focal point of all history. That's the day that Jesus has marked on his calendar. That God the Father has picked out. The day Jesus died is not the focal point of Scripture. It's a great day for you and for me. Listen, that's where my sins are forgiven, Jan. That's where I got born again. You know, at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. That's where Jesus took me in. That's where he took you in. It's where our sins were paid for. It's where we get saved. But the greatest day on God's calendar is not the day that wicked sinners took his lovely son and stripped him naked and beat his body and tore his flesh and nailed him to a cross to die in excruciating pain. No, the the greatest day on God's calendar is that glorious day when his only begotten son receives the glory and the honor that is due to him as King of kings and Lord of lords. That day when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is why we give our time. That is why we give our treasures. That is why we give our talents. Because of the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You see, God created time. He created treasures. He created talents. But God is truth. And that's why we serve him. We are his stewards. Main Street, we're not owners. We're stewards. Stewards of that which belongs to God. Stewards of the truth. Paul said it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. When they asked him, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the time. But you shall be witnesses unto me. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Main Street, that's our job. Not only to steward the time and the treasures and the talents, but most importantly, we are stewards of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, may we be faithful. Telling Georgetown and beyond that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. We'll be doing that this afternoon as we give out Bibles and gospel tracts to trick-or-treaters, trunk-or-treaters. Three o'clock this afternoon in our fall fellowship. I hope and pray you'll come and be a part of that. Fellowship together as a family and be part of being God's witnesses to this world. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you and we love you and we praise you for giving us the privilege to serve you. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we we willingly yield back to you that which you've given to us. Our time, our treasures, our talents. 
to make known the truth of who you are, of what you've done in sending your son to die for our sins and raising him from the dead and promising that he will come one day to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. Bless your people today, Lord, as we remember the sacrifice of your son through the elements of the Lord's Supper and look forward to his return. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask our...